At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. We're in Mark chapter 18 this morning, verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, So Lord, we thank you this morning for, uh, for your word that you've spoken. We thank you, Jesus, that you have said to us and for us about how we should live and relate and even seek reconciliation with one another. So we ask this morning, Lord, that as we, uh, as we walk through these steps and as we think through our lives and as we think about those that we relate with, as we think about the church family, that you would uh, supply to us more grace and that you would help us to uh, walk with you, that we would be people like Christ who pursue one another and care for one another. And Lord, that you would give us grace, that we would see deep unity and love and harmony here among us, and that Christ would be glorified. So bless us, we pray. Spirit of God, work in us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, there's a term getting thrown around right now, uh, not too casually, but, but very deeply, about what is happening in the church uh, in the United States at this current cultural moment. It's a phenomenon that is going on across denominational lines, uh, across um, both evangelical and mainline Christian churches in America today, and that phenomenon is what some are calling the great de-churching, the great de-churching. By that is meant that people have simply stopped attending and being part of a local church altogether. Uh, A group of uh, pastors and researchers in our country have been doing some significant studies to figure out what is going on, why that is the case, and what the results of that are in the church in America today. And and some of the conclusions and some of the things that they've drawn out are actually utterly staggering. Uh, They report that about 40 million American adults, which would be 16% of our uh, population in the United States, uh, 40 million adults in America today used to go to church, but they no longer do. 
And, and they note that for the first time in eight decades, Gallup, who's a, a surveying and polling agency, Gallup has tracked American religious uh, membership, and they have found that at this moment in our culture right now, more adults in the United States do not attend church than do attend church. It's, it's a shift for us as a culture. In years past, more adults would attend church than not attend, but now we're at a point where the majority are staying home. They're not attending a worship gathering. Uh, one publication writes, more people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, a couple of American historical events, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. Jim Davis and Michael Graham, who write in their book, The Great Dechurching, Who's Leaving, Why Are They Going, and What Will It Take to Bring Them Back, they state in this study that we are at a completely different moment in the history of the United States church. These authors, as they did their research and they, they sought to f- see what was happening in these trends of the American church, began to ask the question, why? Why are people leaving the church? What are the result, or what are the reasons? What are the underlying things that folks are stepping away from the church and just simply not attending anymore altogether, as it were? They found a variety of reasons, um, and, and not all of them necessarily bad, but they found several reasons. But one of the greatest reasons that was listed is because of the conflict and pain that occurred within the church by members of the church toward the person who's left. Church hurt. Sin against one another. This is what the late 20th century theologian and cultural apologist Francis Schaeffer noted as the great stench of the church. He described it when Christians disagree with one another, they do generational damage by the words that they say against one another as believers. And so there's a great question about the credibility of the church and a a willingness for people to join and to be a part of the church, even attending a church, because of how damaging it seems to be. Conflict is, is ripe. And the world looks at the church and what's going on in the church and the conflicts that we have within the church. And as an onlooking world, they say, hey, I don't want anything to do with that. I, I get that at my home. I get that at work. I get that in my neighborhood. Why would I want to join another social community that would just have the same, if not even worse, conflict within itself? And so I think about that, and I think about the reality of this great de-churching, and have even seen it and experienced it in my own ministry over the last 20 years, and I, and I look and I go, what, how do we remedy this? How do we answer this? Because the reality is, although we would hope and desire that we would be a loving church, a place where, where people know that they are cared for and loved, as, as maybe as you thought about coming even today, you thought, you know... Woodside Bible Church in Plymouth, what a great place, you know, I hope it's just like the perfect best church. I just have to tell you, I'm sorry, like right out of the gate, we're not. We're we're a congregation of sinners. And inevitably, at our core, because we are sinners, we will sin against and hurt one another. It won't be a perfect, beautiful experience and, you know, lovely in every way. So the question is, how do we handle that when the hurt comes, when when we sin against one another? What do we do? How do we measure that? How How do we respond to that? Well, the way our culture talks to us today about how we respond is is very simply to to cancel each other. 
We should just snuff each other out, forget they exist, like leave them alone or, you know, have nothing to do with them. Or we take it another direction and we ghost each other. We just simply stop talking. We disappear and vanish off the scene. Or even worse, our culture advocates in some way or another going to war with one another, finding ways to make the other person's life miserable or to, to go an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and exact the same amount of pain, if not a greater amount, upon the person who hurt us so that we get back at him. But is that really how Christians should relate to one another? Friends, this isn't a theoretical issue. This isn't some sort of scenario that we can just kind of put on in a laboratory and weigh out on a Petri dish and say, oh, okay, well, here's how it should go. This is, this is real church life for us. And I think it's a practical question for our day and for our time and for, for our church, for this gathering, for us as people together. Because it's near and immediate and we sin against each other and wrong each other all the time. And yes, it does happen here at Woodside Bible Church, Plymouth, unfortunately. Hopefully not intentionally, but it does. So the question is, how will we as God's people live and relate with one another even when we hurt one another? This series that we're in in Matthew 18 has been a series of teaching of Jesus about how, how Christians should relate to one another. What is the, if you can put it this way, what is the family code for the people of God, for followers of Jesus? How should we relate to one another? We've been addressing how we view ourselves and, and how we handle our own sin, sin. We've been encouraged and challenged about how we should pursue those who are lost and wayward. But again, the question stands, what do we do when there's conflict and hurt among us? How do we relate to each other when, because of our sin, we got bad blood now and it just exists among us? Should we write each other off, never to deal with them again? Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 18 may shock and surprise you. It challenges me. Unlike our culture that cancels and ghosts and ignores and shames and even violently reacts against those who wound us, Jesus calls us. He calls his followers to a new way of life that seeks reconciliation and unity. In fact, Jesus in this passage in, in verses 15 through 18, I hope it's so clear that you caught it as I read it. Jesus teaches that Christian relationships should pursue repentance and reconciliation. That our relationships with one another should be relationships that pursue repentance between each other and reconciliation with one another. It's the reality of family, and you cannot give up and let go of your family. Now, I know it's really one thing to say Christians should, re uh, should pursue repentance and reconciliation, and yet the reality, the weight of that statement can be very challenging. Like, if we just think about it in, in a laboratory kind of environment, like, oh, okay, that's nice, it sounds good theoretically, but in the day-to-day -day real stuff of our lives where there's real pain and there's real hurt, this practice is hard. If Jesus tells his people to be people that pursue repentance and reconciliation with one another, I think we have to ask, how do we do that? How do we engage this, this hard Christian work of caring for one another, of loving one another, even when we hurt one another and sin against one another? How should we, when we are sinned against and when we are hurt, how should we go about pursuing reconciliation and repentance? What does Jesus ask us to do when we have been wounded by someone in our church family? Well, this passage, as I mentioned here, Jesus 
helps us. He trains us in how we are to live and relate. And he gives us here uh, some ways to walk in light of his mercy and grace. He, he gives us and outlines for us some steps, some very practical steps that we should take when someone in our church family wounds us. And so I'm just going to walk us through these, these steps. There's four of them, but I'll state them in three points. These four steps to help us know what to do when there is uh, sin in among us and when we are wounded against. The first step that we should take there in verse 15, that Jesus gives to us is this, that we should go to win that person personally. Go to win them personally. Here's what Jesus instructs us to do in verse 15. He says, if your brother or sister, by implication there, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between him and you alone. So Jesus here, he sets the context. He sets the situation. This is between Christians, between brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. People who claim and confess the name of Jesus, who profess to be followers of his, this is a family matter. And the scenario is that you have a brother or sister in your church family, in your congregation together, that has sinned. That is, they have transgressed or they have wronged you in some way. And the sin is personal. It's it's against you, Jesus says. If someone has sinned against you, there are some steps with dealing with and shaping these personal relationships. Now, now, Jesus here isn't just speaking of general sin. If you see somebody who's a Christian off doing something they should not, this is not necessarily that kind of approach. This is a personal thing. When, the sin, when you're the victim, when you're the one wounded, here's, here's how you should take that out. Other places in Scripture talk about what we should do generally when someone is caught in any transgression, as Galatians 6.1 talks about. But here Jesus is putting together a scenario of relationships where one person sins and wrongs another person. What do you do when you've been wronged by another Christian here in the church? Step one has a clear movement. Go and tell them their fault. Go and tell them their fault. Jesus instructs the person who has been wronged to be active and to go seek out the person that has wronged them. Now, this feels, this feels a little counterintuitive because we want them to figure it out first. We want the person who did the wrong to own up on it and to repent, and we want them to be the one to go, oh, I blew it. I really hurt that person. I, I was evil, and, and I need to go and make things right. And if you have that, that inclination or that impulse in your heart that you have sinned and wronged someone else, good, go to them. I mean, it helps when both directions are coming together. But if you've been wronged by another believer, Jesus puts the, the, the impetus on you to go to that person that wronged you, to go to that person. Take the initiative, take the step to go to the person that wronged them. And Jesus, as I read this, I sense a a, a reality of of urgency here. This isn't something that Jesus says, okay, let's take 10 steps back, like let's take a year or two and wait it out and and see what happens. Jesus has like a, like this needs to happen quickly. This needs to happen soon. Don't wait for weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months and years to ha- pass before you address it. Don't let it bottle, don't bottle it up and let it simmer and become some sort, sort of volcano. Or don't wait for that other person to have that illuminating moment where they go, oh, I can't believe it. You know? and then they, no, if you've been wronged by someone in the church, if you've been wronged by a fellow believer or sinned against, Jesus puts the initiative on you to go to them and to tell them the fault. This, I believe, is what could be called the principle of keeping short accounts. I mean, the reality is we're all fallen people. As I said earlier, we will inevitably sin against one another. We will hurt one another. 
So Jesus here is giving us a practice to bring quick healing and to bring harmony and unity with each other when this does happen. If you've been wronged by someone, a brother or sister, then go to them and address the issue with them. Personally, tell them one-on-one, brother, sister, uh, this is how I was sinned against. You hurt me in this way. One of the things I've learned when I've been hiking and out, you know, out in the mountains, climbing around and all that fun stuff I do every once in a while, is that if I get a rock in my hiking boots, my shoe, if I don't deal with that quickly and clear it out of there, even if it's just a tiny little pebble, the longer I let that rock hang around in my foot, the greater the pain and agony I will experience hiking. A little, a little pebble in my hiking boot that I just leave alone, it will destroy my feet. And it will ruin, especially over the length of time that I hike, and that, it can ruin the whole thing. Get it out of the boot. That's how I think about it. And this is why keeping short accounts with brothers and sisters in Jesus is so critical. To tell them, hey, brother, sister, you wronged me. It may be a very small thing that happened, but to address that quickly and directly can be a way of bringing quick healing and unity together. The small little pebble doesn't have a chance to create bigger problems and deeper wounds and greater hurt in our lives if we address it quickly. Now notice Jesus here is clear. This is about sin. This is about when we violate God's law for our lives towards one another. Jesus isn't saying, hey, if somebody has a preference that you don't appreciate or enjoy, then go talk to them about it. He's not saying, you know, if you have a perceived grudge, like you can't go to somebody and say, you know what, your choice of music offends me, you sinner. That's not what he's dealing about. If you are wronged, if you are sinned, then go sinned against, then go and address them about the sin. But there's also a context, and I believe a reason for the speed. Here Jesus says, between you and him alone. Right? Jesus gets this really, really personal and intimate and small. This doesn't need to be blown up into a huge catastrophic issue. It doesn't need to be uh, broadcast around. It doesn't need to, to have a, a prayer group cloaking it as gossip, uh, talking about it. Jesus says, hey, you and the person, let's go and talk. Address them. Share with them how you were wounded and hurt, how they sinned against you. Pray for repentance. Pray for reconciliation. And if you will deal with that small thing, if you will deal with that hurt and wound, and there will be repentance and reconciliation, then he says a great thing will happen. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've won your sister. And you've won them not only to the truth and to walking in harmony with Christ, you've won them to yourself. Those relationships where you have quickly and deeply addressed one another and your wounding of one another... I believe, become deep, helpful, strong, sturdy relationships. They're the kind of relationships that compare deeper, greater things. And so when you go to one another, you're seeking for repentance. You're seeking for reconciliation. Jesus says, if that person listens, you've won, you've gained your brother or your sister. It's a cause for gladness and rejoicing. There's harmony and unity You've won them back from their sin. You've gained them in love. So here's where step one is so critical and important. Go to win that person personally. Aim for and pursue and pray for them. Seek to win them in love. It will make your relationship deeper, thicker, and better. You say, okay, 
We live in the real world, and we always don't get it on the first run. Somebody may say to me, you know, you, you wronged me in this way, and I go, wait, what? No, you're not seeing it correctly. What do we do if that person doesn't repent, if there isn't reconciliation? If, they, if their heart is just hard, and they're like, I don't think so. Well, Jesus says, okay, there's another step. Right? He's, he's continuing to help us along in how we love and care for one another. One of the reasons that we hesitate to go to each other is just fear. We fear the other person. We fear what happens if they don't listen to us. We fear the conflict becoming greater or more damaging to ourselves. And yet Jesus says, keep going. Keep pursuing them. Keep seeking their repentance. Keep seeking re- reconciliation. It's a family matter. So step two, if step one doesn't win them in love, Then step two is to go to win communally. Go to win communally. It's just how we'll say it. Jesus here understands that the other person might not be open to listening. There's rejection and stubbornness and confusion, maybe anger and defensiveness. So what do we do? Jesus says in verse 16, if he doesn't listen, that's a really important word there, if they don't listen, if they don't receive, if they don't repent, if there isn't that reconciliation, then Jesus says, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. At the end of verse 16 here, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 19.15 about how the community addresses sin together. He's saying you can't just make up stuff and say like, hey, you sinned against me in this way. If you're going to go to someone communally, you need to have that accusation, that issue uh, addressed and understood in reality. Two or three witnesses affirm that together. They say, oh, yes, okay, this is true. This is real. So step two is to go back to that person that has sinned against you, but this time to take one or two other people with you. This two or three gives definitive credence to the issue at hand. Now, why would you take a couple other people with you to address that person? First, it's to protect that person against false accusations. The person who is bringing the charge, if they're going to take two or three witnesses, they cannot embellish or inflate or lie about the sin that was done against them. It was just the facts, ma'am. That's just how it is. And here's what we're saying. So to have two or three alongside is to say, okay, this is true and this is false. But it's also to help the person who's accused see the reality of the situation. It's, It's to give them perspective. Sometimes we're so blind to our own sin We're so unaware of how we treat other people that when there are multiple people who are agreeing and showing us, this is how you responded. Do you you see that? Are you perceptive about how your words hurt them this way? We can gain perspective and see things clearly. To have two or three together allows the person who's accused to see the reality of the situation. Thirdly, it allows there to be witnesses of the conversation. If you've ever been in confrontation, you know it's hard, especially at this second step. Having two or three along protects all parties involved to give accuracy as what was said, how things were handled, what the attitudes and posture of the conversation were. These witnesses can serve as mediatorial friends to navigate the challenges of being sinned against. So Jesus says, take two or one or two along with you. I assume these people to be fellow Christians to be wise people. They don't have to know all the facts of the situation. It's not bringing a posse against someone. It's just saying, hey, brothers and sisters, like help us help together, work this out together and bring reconciliation together. They should be people that love and care for both parties, 
and they should seek re- uh, repentance and reconciliation. Now, I don't know about you, but as a kid, I loved the Karate Kid movies. I, I picked up a few bad habits actually growing up as a result of watching them. Uh, but nevertheless, when Netflix picked up that show, kind of a reboot of it called Cobra Kai uh, just a few years ago, I was really interested in it, but only so far as I could get through the first two seasons because it was so cringy to me about how they wrote conflict into the story. The tension of Johnny Lawrence and Daniel LaRusso and their young disciples that they were uh, teaching karate to was, became so palpable to me that after one misunderstanding after another, after one false assumption after another, I just I threw up my hands in the air and I would shout to myself internally, mainly because I was watching it late at night and didn't want to disturb the whole house, but I would shout to myself internally, just you guys just need to sit down and work this out together like adults. Quit assuming, quit making, making false assumptions, like work it out. But that's too clean for Hollywood writers. And I mean, really, you can't have a karate kid show without some karate uh, in it. So you've got to have a fight somewhere along the way. The point is this. If step one, go to win them personally, doesn't work, if that's not met with listening and repenting and reconciliation, then take a couple believers along with you to help you. Again, they don't have to be witnesses, but they should be followers of Jesus They should have a heart of love for both parties and a desire for reconciliation and unity. And the aim, get this, the aim is not to win an argument. The aim is to win your brother or sister in relationship. It's for reconciliation. You say, okay, I've done step one, I've done step two, but they're still not listening. They're they're, they're not repenting. And they're, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, what do I do now? Well, if they don't listen, if they don't respond with humility and repentance and there isn't reconciliation, Jesus escalates it to a third step. He gives us another way to go. And this, to say it this way is to go to win them congregationally. I want you to see here in these three steps, Jesus isn't just allowing for a person to ghost somebody else. He's not giving us permission as Christians just to say, you know, back off into nothing and I hope to never see you again kind of deal. Jesus instructs us to pursue, to keep pursuing the sinning person. This third step involves us as a congregation, involves the church together. Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now the sinned against person should involve and request the help of the local church to win back their erring brother or sister person hasn't heard the individual, they haven't heard the two or three witnesses, so a larger congregation needs to get involved. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that if you've been sinned against and you went to the person privately and they didn't listen, and then you took a couple of friends along and they still didn't listen, then after my sermon, you should rush up here, grab the microphone and say, let me tell you about what they just did and blurt out all the issues. Please, we don't need to have uh, the festivist airing of grievances in our liturgies on Sunday mornings. But what you should do is approach the elders of the church. You should come and talk to me, Casey, Buford, Joe Good, and you should ask for our help as elders. You need to be able to demonstrate that you've taken the first two steps and you're seeking the help of the church, not to win the argument, but to win them back, win the, re- the relationship back in love of the offending person. And then we as elders can help you navigate how to approach and congregationally deal with this person. The elders can determine with you the scope of involvement of 
how broadly across the church this needs to go, the communication to the church that would be appropriate, that would warn, the goal is to warn and encourage the sinning person towards repentance. In some way, you can think of this third strategy, this third step, as a strategy that addiction recovery organizations would recommend to family members or friends who have someone who's caught causing significant harm to themselves and others. It's an intervention. A larger group of people come who love the addict and they sit down and they confront them about their destructive behavior and they express concern and support and encourage them to pursue treatment and help. The hope is in an intervention that the larger group will break through the stubbornness and blindness and result in recovery. That's what Jesus is giving us here in this step of Go tell it to the church. Get leadership involved. Let's bring the church together so that we can see reconciliation. So here's these first three steps. Go win personally. If, that's, if they won't listen, go to win communally. Take one or two others along. And if they still won't listen, then go to win congregationally. Involve the church. But, okay, let's be honest. Like, what if that doesn't work? Where, where do we go from here? What if they still will not repent Their sin is still there and they are causing harm and damage. What if they won't listen and turn, even to the instruction and counsel of the church and the church's leaders? Well, Jesus gives some sobering instruction here. He says, let them be to you. If if they refuse to listen, verse 17, even to the church, even to the congregation, if they refuse to listen, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? He says, simply, simply put, the relationship status has to change. No longer should this unrepentant person be treated as a member of the spiritual family. Instead, they are to be treated as an unbeliever in need of the gospel and a sinner in need of repentance. And, and that's what the church should do. This is a practice of church discipline. The church should remove them from membership, withhold the privileges of membership from them, and yet... Call them to repent of their sin and believe the gospel. We don't cancel people. We just say the status has changed. Our posture towards you has changed. You're acting like an unbeliever, someone who doesn't have the spirit of God within you. And because of that, we as a church need to pursue you with the gospel of God. We need to point you to Christ again and again and again so that your eyes will be opened and that you will come to Christ himself. Now, it is a serious step to take, and it shouldn't be done quickly or in any kind of arbitrary fashion, yet this fourth step has the stability of having the three steps that Jesus gave prior to it, and this being the final step. The person has been addressed by one and hasn't listened. The person has been addressed by two or three, and they haven't listened. The person has been addressed by the leaders of the church and the church itself, and they haven't listened. Okay. The status of their relationship with the church changes. No longer a member of the church, perceived as a brother or sister in Christ, but now perceived as someone who's outside the family and pursued with the gospel of grace as family. And that's why in verses 18 through 20, Jesus says what he does. It's it's hard as a leader to walk through these steps with people and to not see a positive income or a, a, a positive outcome and a positive response. As a pastor, I've had to walk through these steps on several occasions. And one of the things that can happen is I can become quick to question myself. Did we do it right? Have we handled it well? Did we mark all the steps out? 
And yet Jesus says here to leaders, I think in verses 18 through 20, you can be confident in the decision you made and in the way you've handled this if you follow the steps that I am present with you. He says, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus here gives confidence to, saying, to us by saying, if you go through this process, when it's been followed, my blessing and my presence are there. As we saw earlier in this chapter, God's heart is for the pursuit of the sinner. So it may not feel like the most loving thing to exercise church discipline on those who will not repent, but the aim is that they would wake up and they would recognize their sin and they would humble themselves in repentance. It is a loving thing to pursue them in the steps that Jesus has given. It's a means of pursuing unity and reconciliation and love within the church. Here's what I love about these steps. They reveal the heart of a God who pursues us. Because when you step back and you really think about what Jesus is laying out here, he's just laying out the way that God pursues us. We are the ones who have sinned against him. We are the ones who have rejected him as creator and king over all things. We are the one who deserve death for our sin. David, when he prayed in Psalm 51, his prayer of repentance, he said, Against you and you only have I sinned, even though his sin was against Uriah and Bathsheba and the entire nation of Israel. He saw that his ultimate sin was against God. And that's us in every sin of ours. In every way that we hurt and harm one another through sin, we're hurting and harming the Lord God himself. And yet, Christ pursues us. Jesus pursued us by humbling himself and becoming a human being just like us without sin. He came for us personally, pursues us himself, giving his very life for our sake. And Jesus pursues us with his love and his patience and his kindness. He bears witness with us, with the word and with the spirit, calling us to repent and to receive his love. And Jesus, through his sinless human life, his death on the cross and his resurrection, he makes reconciliation for us with his father, adopting us as brothers and sisters into his family. Jesus doesn't go to war cancel or ghost us in our sin against him. He pursues us. He pursues us for our own repentance and for reconciliation. So so the good news is here that what he is calling us to do and the steps that he's calling us to take when we find we are sinned against by one another are the very things that he has done to pursue us. He gave himself for us. He came after us. He showed us our way. He showed us his grace. We can be reconciled to him through what he has done. And we can be reconciled to each other by our loving pursuit of one another. So what do we do? If you've been harmed against, if you've been sinned against by a brother or sister in the church, pursue them in the way that Jesus has pursued you. Let's be this kind of people that pursue because Christ pursued us. Let's be the kind of people that seek repentance, seek reconciliation, not to snuff out one another, not to cancel each other or go to war against each other, but to be people of love and harmony 
and unity together. The onlooking world, when they see that kind of love, when they see that kind of pursuit, they will say, it's true. They're followers of Jesus, and we know that by their love for one another. To be people who pursue one another because Jesus pursued us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your pursuit of us, your love for us, have kept coming after us sinners who deserve nothing but, but death. We deserve nothing but judgment and, and wrath, and yet you have loved us, you have pursued us, you've opened our eyes to our sin against you, and you've given us Christ who has atoned for and answered and forgiven all of our sin. So, Father, in the way that Christ has done that for us, in the way that you have loved and pursued us, may we be people that pursue and love, carry the burdens of one another. May we be a people of unity, a people of harmony, a people of reconciliation together. And where there are those gaps, Father, even in our relationships now, would you give us grace to see them mended? Would you give us intentionality to go and pursue those who have hurt us. But Lord, would you also give us humility if we are the ones who have hurt others to receive that and to repent and to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters. Thank you for your love for us. May we be like Christ, we pray in his name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.